Amen. All right, while, while um, we receive the offering, why don't you guys go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Um, you're going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, we are in Luke 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, maybe you forgot your Bible at home, maybe you don't own a Bible, that's okay. There's actually a Bible underneath the seat that you're sitting in. Um, that should be anyways. If not, there's one nearby. It's a white Bible. And we're going to be in Luke 15. And that, in that white Bible, it's on page, sorry, we're going to be in Luke 10. Luke 10. And in that white Bible, it's on page 506. Luke 10. In the White Bible, page 506, hopefully that helps you if you are new to the Bible. Um, Luke 10, page 506. If you don't own a Bible, like you don't have a Bible at home anywhere in your house, um, steal that white one, right? Um, I promise you, no one's going to tackle you on your way out. You can tell all your friends that you stole a Bible from church. There's only one catch. Uh, you need to get a video of that, right? You need to get a video of you telling your friend that you stole a Bible from church because I want to see it. That was just going to be amazing, all right? Uh, no, seriously, that's our gift to you. Take that, steal that. Um, it's, it's yours if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Luke 10, we are going to look at a story this morning. What we've been doing, we're in a series called True Flourishing Is. And, and the idea is that here at Flourishing Grace Church, we say we, we are all about leading people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. We want to see our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members led into flourishing relationships with Jesus. That means that you and I, we have to be the ones who lead them, right? We are, we are leaders of people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. Well, what does that even look like? What does that mean, right? And so what is true flourishing? How do we know um, if we ourselves have a flourishing relationship with Jesus? How do we know if we are actually leading people into a flourishing relationship with Jesus? And so what we've done is through just a lot of prayer and thought and energy and effort, we've developed kind of seven core convictions or values. And we would say, man, if these things are true of our lives, we have flourishing relationships with Jesus. If these things become true of the lives of uh, my boys, if these things become true of the lives of, of a neighbor or a friend, a coworker, they, they've, they've been led into, they've moved into a flourishing relationship with Jesus. And so we started this a few weeks ago. We talked about uh, putting Jesus first at all costs. When Jesus becomes the one who is the most valuable thing in our life, the thing that we cling to in our darkest hour and in the best times, right? In the best of the times, we give him the credit and the glory. And in the darkest hours, we put all of our hope and trust in him. He is preeminent in all things. Suddenly, flourishing begins to take place. That's first and foremost. Last week, we talked about this idea of living in prayer-saturated life. If you're going to have a relationship with the God of the universe, um, prayer needs to be a part of that, right? There needs to be conversation had between you and he. Um, you can't have a relationship without conversation. And so living a prayer-saturated life. And this morning, we're going to talk about um, a second piece of this, um, part of the greatest commandment, to, to love our neighbors. And we, we put it this way, loving people no matter what. We're talking about loving people no matter what. And we're going to do it by looking at a fictional character, right? In the past two weeks, we've looked at real-life characters, historical people who, who live just like you and me. So this morning, we're going to look at a fictional character. Jesus told a story. It's one of the most famous stories that's ever been told in the history of the planet, of the word, of the world. And, and the reality is, is your friends who don't know Jesus, your friends who don't go to church, uh, know this story. Or at least they could kind of give you a high-level um, summary of the story. They might not be able to nail it, but they could, they could get close, right? It's a story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan in Luke 10, and, and rather than talk much more about it, let's just, let's just read it. Luke 10, um, it starts in verse 25. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to put Jesus to the test. 
saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right, let's pause just for a minute. All right, so Jesus is teaching as, he, as, he, as is common for him. There's, there's a crowd of people there. There's a lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law, stands up. He says, let's see how smart this guy is, right? What must you do to inherit eternal life, right? That's a big question. That's a weighty question. Everybody wants to know that question, right? Every person on the planet Earth wants to know, what do I got to do to live forever, right? And Jesus says, well, you know, you're the expert in the law, bro. You tell me, all right? And he says, well, I know the law. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, those are, those are the preeminent commands within the law. The, on those two commands, all things hinge, and, and yeah, so you do that, and you're, you're, you're good, right? And Jesus is like, yep, you got it. Can we move on? But the lawyer is not satisfied. He's, he's not satisfied. He, here's what he says. But desiring, he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus re replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil on, and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus then asked the question, Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the young lawyer, says, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right? So Jesus, as he commonly does, he answers a question with a story, uh, a story known as a parable. This, this, short, uh, this short fictional story given to teach a lesson, to answer a question, right? So that the asker of the question might, on their own, figure out the answer to their own question. And so Jesus tells the story of a man. This man would have been a Jewish man, right? He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This Jewish man uh, on the road falls among robbers. Now, everybody's standing around Jesus when he tells this story. Um, these characters would have been very common. He would, they would have understood. They know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is not a crazy story for them, right? He's going on the road. He falls among robbers. Again, not a crazy, uncommon thing, right? It's, it's not a safe road to be on at night. And so nobody's surprised by the story. 
He falls among the robbers and they, they strip him. They remove all of his clothes and everything that he owns. They take everything from him, right? Maybe he's riding an animal. Maybe he's doing whatever. They take everything that he's got. They beat him. They leave him naked on the side of the road. Now comes the surprising part. Jesus says a priest comes along, sees him, and goes to the other side of the road and just keeps on walking. And then a Levite, right? These two respected Jewish leaders, right? A priest and a Levite, these, these noble, righteous men who would have been honored in the community. Both, they see him, long story short, they see the guy laying there on the side of the road fighting for his life. Everything's gone. Everything's been taken from him. And they're like, hmm, it's going to go this way. But then a Samaritan comes by. A Samaritan comes by. A Samaritan who, um, for literally hundreds of years, the Samaritans and the Jews have never got along. They don't like each other at all. They are opposed to what each other believe. They are opposed to each other's way of life. They disagree about everything within culture, with everything within religion, everything within politics. They do not agree at all. In fact, at this point in time in history, um, it's widely believed that um, majority of Samaritans and majority of Jews would not speak to each other. If they were ever to be found in a common place together, um, they would avoid each other at all costs. And yet the Samaritan sees the Jew laying on the side of the road and says help this guy and not just help him like maybe you and I would help him right uh, I, I don't know about you but I, every, anytime I ever stop I see what someone I need or someone that needs help they're broken down on the side of the road it's like how fast can I help them and get out of here right I, I'm just being honest I'm just a little confession right I'll change your tire and then I'm out because I don't want to get into that weird conversation where okay we've talked about your car and now you're like talking about like your own life and I'm just like no I just want to go like we just can we just move on but no what I love about the story is that the Samaritan actually wades in and says all right I'm gonna give you my own wine my own oil I'm gonna put you on my own animal which means I'm gonna walk okay I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give up my rights I'm gonna and I'm gonna give them to you I'm gonna take you to an inn where I'm gonna care for you right not just leave you there I keep cares from all night long make sure that he's doing okay and then in the morning he says to the innkeeper here's the deal here's some money you take care of him if that money runs out and you got to spend more spend it I will repay you when I come back I'm coming back I'm gonna check on him I'm going to take care of the situation. So, so just whatever it costs, do it. Help this man. Now, it, the reality is the story of the Good Samaritan is this, is this beautiful story um, that calls us um, to a greater sense of love. And, and in the past few weeks, this, this idea has actually come up quite a bit. In the past few weeks, as we kind of look at the world around us, um, in the news and on TV and on the radio, uh, we, we've seen um, this, this ugly hatred rear its head within our culture, within our society, right here in our own backyard. Um, we've seen this thing take place in places like Charlottesville where racism rears its head and we recall this idea whether we know the story or not, we hear people in the news talking about, man, the Good Samaritan, we need to be, do a better job of loving our neighbor. We need to do a better job of, of helping those um, who are not like us. And for sure, listen to me, it for sure declares that as true. The story of the Good Samaritan declares that as true. 
In fact, I would say it declares as true that the follower of Jesus never responds um, with hate or violence or racism. The follower of Jesus is called to love people no matter what. It declares that as true. It calls us to love people regardless of their age or race or color of their skin or sexual orientation. The parable of the Good Samaritan absolutely calls us to that. And I understand, I fully know that there are people who in the name of Jesus have produced hate and violence and even racism in the name of Jesus. I understand that. I'm not afraid of that. What I can tell you with certainty is there is no one violent who is a follower of Jesus. There is no follower of Jesus who is also a racist. There is no follower of Jesus who is also hateful. It does not exist. There are people who believe they're followers of Jesus, and I'll go so far as to say with boldness, hell will be filled with people who believe they're followers of Jesus that are violent, hateful, and racist, Um, but they're not followers of Jesus. That person does not exist. It does not exist. The, The gospel, the gospel is a completely, totally, absolutely opposed to hate, violence, and racism. They do not coexist, but I believe, friends, I believe that the parable of the Good Samaritan actually pushes us a little bit farther than that. I think it's easy for us to say, man, those people in Charlottesville should love their neighbor, right? My neighbors should love their neighbors. My coworkers should love the coworkers. My family members should love my family members. Absolutely, I believe that. Uh, you You want me to love my neighbor too? You want, you want me to, to, to act like the Good Samaritan? You see, the problem, I think, that what exposes for, for me, if I, let's, just, let's just use me, it, it, what it exposes in my heart, okay, it is not white supremacy, but self-supremacy. You see, the reality is that the rich young ruler comes to Jesus not to justify hate, but to justify himself. He asks the question, who is my neighbor? Not because he wants to go, um, he wants to go abuse people, not because he wants to go hate on people, but because he wants to justify his lack of love for other people. And there is a difference between the two, right? And so just, just because I'm not one who goes around hating everybody doesn't mean I'm a person that goes around loving everybody. And so the problem that I see for me and, and hopefully for you is not white supremacy, but self-supremacy, where we believe that in some way, shape, or form, I am better than because fill in the blank. I, 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 I am, my time is more worthy um, than me helping them. My, my, my time is more valuable than, than it would take for me to engage this person. And so the reality is what I think the, the, the parable does for us is, is really two things. It teaches us two things. Number one, it shows and exposes us that the person that we're called to love um, is not like us. The person that we're called to love is not always like us. We don't get to choose that person. We don't get to choose the person that we're called to love. We're called to love all people at all cost. We're, we're called to love people no matter what. And I don't get to choose who that person is. Now, I think um, 
naturally, it is okay to gravitate towards people who are like you. That's actually, that's actually okay, right? People who have the same uh, values, the same hobbies, like the same thing, they like the same food, right? I'm not going to associate myself with someone who likes to eat at uh, Lorena's. Like, we're not going to have dinner together, and they think that's amazing Mexican food, because it's not, all right? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you like Lorena's, we're probably not going to have dinner together. Like, that's just, okay? Maybe coffee, maybe, maybe, right? We can for sure talk, but I'm not having dinner with you, okay? Because um, it's not real food, let alone Mexican food, all right? It does things to you that just food shouldn't do, all right? Um, and so, I, it's, that's okay. It's okay to, to hang out with people who like the same sports or like the same hobbies or like the same music. That's okay. The parable is not pushing you away from that. What it's pushing you to is something as well as that. It's pushing you to not distance yourself from people who are unlike you, to, to remove love and affection from people who are not the same as you. This is what the parable pushes us to. It pushes us to engage the weird neighbor who never gets invited to the block party anymore um, because they just kind of never really talk to anybody and they're always kind of grumpy. It pushes us to be the person in the neighborhood that's constantly inviting them, constantly checking on them, making sure that they're okay, making sure that they're, that they're invited to these things, making sure that they know that they are loved. It pushes us to the weird coworker, the guy with the funky mustache that gets food stuck in it all the time and nobody really invites him to home lunch because they don't want to see the food in the mustache, right? But we are the ones that engage. We, we are the ones that say, no, no, I, I want to engage. I want to love people who are not necessarily like me. I, I know you don't like the same sports as I do. I know you don't listen to the same music that I do. I, I know that you don't eat the same food as I do. But that doesn't mean that I don't love you. I don't, we don't get to choose. As followers of Jesus, we are pulled, we are robbed, we are stripped of the, the right to choose who we love and who we don't love. There is no one over here that we're like, okay, this person, I don't have to love this person. No, we're called to love the people who are not like us. We're called to love the people who are not like us. Here's, here's a question for you. You're in Charlottesville. What side of the street do you stand on? White supremacist side or the anti-white supremacist side? My guess is you stand over here, anti, that's where I'd be. So who am I called to love? That side. I mean, that's hard right there. That's hard. And I'm called to love the people who scare me, the people who generate within me anger and frustration, who generate within me tears and sorrow and pain. That's who we're called to love. People who are completely adamantly opposed to everything that I preach, everything that I hold as dear, called to love them. Not, not, not what they do, not their choices, but their soul, their, their, them as a human being. That's who I'm called to love. People who are not like me. The second thing is this, that love, the parable teaches us that that, that, that type of love is supposed to cost us. The way that we love people as followers of Jesus should cost us. The Samaritan gives his wine and his oil, expensive things, to someone who is absolutely unlike him in every way. He puts him on his own donkey and he walks. The journey just got a little bit slower and a lot more uncomfortable. It cost him time. 
He shows up at the inn. He gets a room at the inn. Maybe he probably wasn't going to even plan on staying at this inn. But they show up at the inn, and he has to pay for the room. He has to take care of this guy all night long. And then he fronts the money and says, whatever it costs, you just take care of him. I'll pay it when I get back. He's not the guy who's just like, all right, I'm going to do the bare minimum, and then I'm out. No, how do I fully make sure that this person knows that they are loved? So here's the question, right? How do, how do we know? How do we know if we are loving our neighbors well? How do we know if we're responding to the call to love people no matter what? M- most of you, I think probably all of you, have somebody in your life that's just harder to love, right? It, that's okay. You can admit that. That, that person at that the office, that person in your life, that, that neighbor, that friend, just people, that person who kind of always is hanging out with your friends and you wish they weren't, right? They're just a little bit harder to love. When was the last time that they felt loved by you and it cost you something? When was the last time you loved someone who's just, just absolutely not like you in any way and it cost you something to love them? This is what the parable calls us to. And the reality is, is that I think for most of us, the answer to that question is uh, maybe never. Maybe never. Because again, I'm back to my original point, that the problem is not white supremacy, it's self-supremacy. We think that in some way, shape, or form that, that uh, my time's more valuable, um, my, my feelings are more valuable, um, my values are more valuable, um, my ideals are more valuable, my tastes are more valuable, and so therefore I just don't engage at all. I engage in what's good for me and what's going to make me happy and what's going to bring me joy and what's going to bring me comfort um, rather, than, rather than laying those things down for those who do not have love, who are in desperate need of help, who are in desperate need of kindness, who are in desperate need of mercy. And I guarantee you there are people in your life that are that way. There are people that you run into every single day um, that are in that situation. They're not like you. You don't hang out with them. You don't, you don't pick up the phone and call them. You don't choose them. But they are in your life. And you would do anything in your power to avoid them. But the parable's calling you to engage them, to engage in their sorrow, to engage in their pain, to engage in their despair, and to love them in a way that costs you, a way that costs you. How do we do this? How, how do we get to this place? How do we move from um, self-supremacy to selflessness? How, how do we move from loving ourselves um, to loving people no matter what? How, how do we do that? I think there's three things that need to change. There's three things that need to change in my life, and I believe that these three things need to change in your life as well. If we are going to follow the call of Christ, and remember the original question, what do I got to do to enter eternal life? a weighty, heavy thing. There's three things in my life that need to change if I'm going to follow this commandment. The first is my view of my own self, how I view Josh. The great Puritan uh, preacher, Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s, created uh, a a list of resolutions. This list of resolutions, this massively long thing, and he says, man, if, if, if all, I'm going to give all of that I am and all of my might to living out these things in my life. And the eighth one is this. Here's the, here's the eighth resolution of Jonathan Edwards. I resolve to act in all respects 
both speaking and doing, everything I say and everything I do, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And if, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmaries, infirmities or, or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion for my confessing my own sin and misery to God. Here's what he says. When I see Charlottesville on TV, I look at the hate and I say, that's mine. I look at the racism and I say, that's mine. I look at the violence and I say, that's, that's mine. Because the weight of their sin does not outweigh mine. It's the same. And so what it produces in me is confession. What it produces in me is humility. What it produces in me um, is the realization that on my best day, I'm still no better than they. In the eyes of God, my sin is still my sin. And even though maybe I'm not there, and maybe even though I'm adamantly opposed to everything that they are doing, I'm still not perfect. I'm still just as broken, just as guilty, and just, just as condemned as they are. And so when we see the disgustingness of humanity, even though we are removed a world away, let it, let it bring to within our souls, let it, let it stir within us the reality is that's who we are. That's who I am. I, I am a sinner in desperate need of a savior no better than anyone else. Our view of ourselves must change. And so self-fulfillment is how, do I, how am I rescued from that? The second thing is that it changes, it changes our view of humanity. Not just the view of me, but the view of, of all humanity. You see, all of humanity is created by God. And it's created separate from everything else that he created because it's created in his own image. And in his own image, God creates man. And in his own image, he creates woman. He shapes and molds them. The crown jewel of his creation, Charles Spurgeon said. He shapes and molds them and he gives them extra worth and extra value, a soul that will live forever. Knowing that and understanding that, there's a weight to that for me. To give that same worth and that same value to that same creature. To my brothers and my sisters who are like me and love me and care about me and are kind to me and those who are adamantly opposed to everything that I hold dear. Those who would choose to attack me, who would choose to wrong me, who would choose to take something from me. You see, sometimes our, our for some of us in the room, our, our kind of knee-jerk reaction when situations like this go down is to find the robber, right? What happened to the robber in the story? Let's find that guy. Let's strip him and beat him and teach him something, right? Let's teach him a lesson. But no, we're called to love the robber too because he's just as worthy and just as valuable as the Jew that was stripped and beaten. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, don't, that we don't move to defend. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't ever stand up and scream and say, that's wrong. We need to put an end to this thing. I'm just saying vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to you or me. That he is still one of the crown jewels of the creation of humanity. 
And so the follower of Christ seeks to love and seeks to engage with kindness, even the most vile of men. The last thing that must change, must change, is our view of the gospel, our view of Jesus. You see, the gospel removes, it, it strips from me the ability to think of myself as more worthy than anyone else. It strips from me um, all of my, um, what, what, I, what I would say is, is anger or vengeance, it removes that from me. Because if Christ didn't choose to engage me that way when I was guilty, how, how can I possibly do that to someone else? The reality is, is that apart from Christ, uh, apart from Christ, you and I, we have 80, 90 years. So I got 50 left, give or take a few. Apart from Christ, that's all I got. Apart from Christ, I need to maximize every minute, every second, every hour of that time. I don't have time to wade into the brokenness of this world. I don't, I don't have time to care about what's going on in Charlottesville or what's going on in North Korea or what's going on in my own backyard. I, I need to maximize my time because it's mine. I, I need to do the things that I love. I, I need to, 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 to be with the ones that I know are going to care about me and are going to treat me well. I, I don't have time for people who are negative. I need to push them out of my life rather than engage them in my life. Right? That's all I've got. When my time's up, it's up. But in Christ, on the cross, Jesus removed all of my sin. All of it. The God of the universe stepped into time and he became a man and he bled in my place. He took from me the punishment that was due to me. And, and in removing that, he also removed all of my insecurities and all of my fears. Because now my, I, my identity is wrapped up in him. I will spend eternity with him. And so the next 50 years of my life, who cares about me? I have all eternity. And in that eternity, there will be no tears. There will be no sorrow. There will be no mourning. There will only be joy. I will be with him. And everybody who, who I engage with and everybody who I explore this untappable, unending joy with will treat me well. So I don't need to fight for that for the next 50 years. Next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, how many you have left? I don't need to fight for that. When someone, when someone chooses to wrong me, it's temporary. Or, or, or it's, it's over. If someone wants to, wants to hurt me, who cares? I have all eternity to, to, to bask in complete, untappable, unknowable joy and delight. This moment is so temporary. Why would I take any of it? When so much has been given to me, if, if Christ has given me all of that, who am I to cling to these small, little, teeny things that are meaningless? Like, like, like this fake dignity that I think comes from you or me. No, it comes from him. He's already given me all that I need. And, and nobody can take that from me. So who cares? Who cares if I'm attacked? Who cares how I'm treated? Who cares um, if someone treats me unkindly? Man, let's just keep loving them. Let's 
keep being kind. Who cares if somebody breaks into my home and wants to take something that's mine? Well, let them have it. Who cares if they want to take me? To live as Christ, to die as gain, man. That there is no violent response for a true follower of Jesus. He removed that on the cross. He took all the violence. There is no hateful response from a follower of Jesus. He removed that on the cross. My identity is wrapped up in him. Not in some form fake temporary thing that I can shape or mold here in this life. That's to cling to that. To cling to that, to, to violently fight for that is foolishness. And I know that's a hard thing to understand because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. We're so wrapped up in thinking that we have something here. And these next 50 years, man, this is valuable and I need to maximize this. It's not, though. It's not. You got all eternity to enjoy perfection. So there is no violent response. There's no hateful response. There's no room for that within the gospel of Jesus. He has removed it all. Because even though his response should have been violent, his response should have been to, to, to extend wrath and to crush and to break, he restored what was broken. He set straight what was bent. He prepared an eternity for us. So there's, there's just no room for hate. That's why he's able to say, man, if you come after me, love people no matter what. Love people who are not like you. Love people when it's going to cost you. Because ultimately, everything that you're given is just meaningless, temporary stuff. You think you want it. You think you need to cling to it. You think you need to cling to this self, this, this identity, this dignity, this life, this breath, this oxygen in your lungs. But really not that big of a deal. It's temporary. And use this time now to bring him glory, to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us to love you. Help us to love our neighbors. That is the call of the life of the follower of Jesus. There is no value in hate. There is no value in revenge. There is no value in violence. I pray that you would, you would expand our minds, that you would help us to see more clearly that who, who we are as followers of Jesus is wrapped up in you, not in us. So might we let go a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, our grasp on the things of this world whether it's things that are actually tangible that we can feel and touch, like money and possessions or stuff, or whether it's deeper things that are untouchable, that are unseen. Like our false dignity, our false worth. And all of that's in you, and it can't be taken away. Don't, don't let us create this false sense of self that we cling to and fight for, violently fight for, hatefully fight for, racially believe that in some way, shape, or form, I am better than. 
ache. It's not real. I pray that your gospel would strip us of that again and again and again, that, she, that we would see the beauty of a God who has forgiven us much. And so might we forgive those around us the little that they've hurt us. Let's be people of radical love who love people no matter what. I pray these things in your name. Amen.